Welcome back to Chit Chat with Alley Cat. I'm your host, Alley Cat, and today I'm here with Melanie Clay. She's a lifelong learner, educator, and multidisciplinary writer from Oakland, California. All right, welcome, Melanie. So good to have you. I'm so excited. Um, I'm glad that we're going to be talking about worthiness today. I think that this is a topic that Black women, we've kind of been meditating on, you know, collectively, but I don't see, like, I don't see a lot of, like, expansion on it, you know, on, like, an intimate level. I think we see it on, like, a, you know, societal media, like, oh, look at Black women, we're worthy. But, right, but it's like, or worthy in terms of being commodified. And so I'm really excited to talk a lot more with you about, you know, what does that mean? And so if you could think of what worthy, like what worthiness is meant for you or how it shows up in your life and share maybe an example or two. I think... So what's hard is that I don't, I mean, you never arrive anywhere. I think that's maybe the most important lesson I've learned recently that has been helping a lot. Is like, once I finally accepted that you don't actually ever arrive anywhere, you're never done with anything, um, that helps. But I think in terms of worthiness, I know I won't arrive, but I don't feel like I'm yet at a place where I even fully believe, I say it, because you got to, but I don't really fully believe that I am. Like mm. I say it, I want to believe it. There's a lot of people who would be surprised to hear that I don't believe it. Um, so I, I'll answer it from like what I hope to be true for myself when I say I am worthy and I and I believe it um, through my core as a default, even if there's points where that wavers. It's not the default right now. Um, and I think what that will mean is that my opinion of myself will ultimately be the only one that matters Mm. and can change how I feel about myself. So other people's opinions will be important. Um, I think especially as someone, you know, who aspires to be a revolutionary, like it's, it's important to be in community. It's important to have folks who can hold you accountable and things like that. So it's like, it's not like I'll just never take into consideration other people's opinions. But other people's opinions of me, whether well-intentioned or otherwise, I think is part of why I'm at where I'm at now. It's just never even really being given a chance to, to, to see myself as the ultimate decider um, of, of who I am and, and, and what I am worthy of and capable of and things like that. So I think when I believe it, what will be true is that while I value other people's opinions, they won't have so much sway over how I see myself mm. and define myself and think about myself. And right now, other people's opinions really hold entirely still, entirely too much sway right. over and, how I view myself and, and my work. Mm-hmm. And that weight is just so interesting to think about because we were, we were chatting a little bit about like Black women in our hair. And I feel like that was a journey that I had within my hair because, you know, I was like perms, straight, all the time. And and thinking about how I was showing up to assimilate and really be palatable for all these people while not expressing myself, not showing up for myself. And I think when I started to walk towards my worthiness, I love that you said it's it's a journey because it really is like the arrival is a constant. Like you got (laughs) to you got to constantly hop on that train. Mm -hmm. Um, But like once I started to like move towards that, like my expression was just so different. You know, people were like, oh, Allie, you got the purple hair. Oh, Allie, you know, you're going to be doing all these different styles. And I was like, yep. And whatever you have to say about it is what you have to say. But it definitely took me a minute to get there because I was still just moving around with these internal thoughts of like, is it going to be professional? Is, do I look like, does my hair look nappy? Like, what are these concepts of what that means? You know what I mean? And like, like how I show up. And so I just love that you said that, you know, like that weight is just so heavy from societal standards that like 
we have this work to to rewrite so much of it constantly. And I feel like that shows up in so many aspects of life, right? When we're talking about revolution, when we're talking about education, when we're talking about what it means to show up in our in ourselves and our bodies. And are there any people who embody that like that courage or who embody that that space of um yeah, I would say just courage, who who walk in that. I, one of my best friends is um, an artist, creative, um, by the name of Dom John. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be name dropping throughout That's the fine. <laughs> it's love. She got an album and a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Dom Jones, we've been friends since I bugged the shit out of her um, backstage at a show when we were in high school. Um, and, and when I say it's a journey, it's like, you know, because we've been friends so long, like this is somebody that I've definitely seen along this journey. Um, and why I bring her up, I think as an example is because whenever I find myself being like, I, I don't care, like that really sounds like a personal problem that you mm. feel that way. Or that really sounds like a personal problem that you think that about me. Like whenever I'm able to harness that mood, like, I think that's who I'm thinking of is like, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that that folks can't hurt her. It doesn't mean she's unreachable, untouchable. But, but when, when it comes down to what she wants for herself, what her dreams are, what she's doing, what she's about, the invitation of other people's opinions is just really not there. This <laughs> is mm -hmm. not there. <laughs> Uh, unless it's like no you homie like you friend you sister like absolutely again it's like I value your opinion but your opinion is not actually going to change what I'm doing mm -hmm. um and that's huge I, I think that's the first person that comes to mind because like I think too there are celebrities that from a consumer standpoint it feels like maybe they're embodying that but it's I hesitate to bring up celebrities because it's like I don't actually who knows I don't I don't know right. if that's authentically your journey I don't know if that's authentically how you feel about yourself or just about this path um right or if it's, if it's because you have to sell something even if that something is is yourself as a brand and so like but like that's the first person that comes to mind for mm -hmm. me and that's beautiful and I think that what it's important that we plug our people like don't ever have to apologize for that because <laughs> I think that's shrinking you know like we shrink to think like mm -hmm. oh well you know I probably shouldn't do these things and I really just appreciate that mm -hmm. you know you thought of someone that you love and I was in um, a zoom today <laughs> you know as we are mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> it was actually really beautiful it was a zoom full of black women and yeah, it was like this black woman healing space. And the mm. keynote, um, her name was Dion Ivory. She was talking about how black women are worthy. And she had this short film that she made. And just thinking about like her experience as a survivor, her experience mm. as someone who really does believe in black women and our healing and our worth and how it doesn't show up in the same ways that we see it commodified, mm. you know? And so for me, I just keep thinking about like, what does our worth look like where we're not having to buy something or we're not having to be, you know, like something for other people where we're actually mm -hmm. being able to pour back into ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering for you if there, there has been times where you've had to really challenge these like societal standards of what it means to take care of yourself. It's a struggle right now because it's it's like on the one hand I feel like there's the the philosophy of because of everything black folks have been through black women and femmes especially because of everything we're forced to carry because of everything we choose to carry mm -hmm. for the sake of our people our families our communities ourselves it's like there's this side that's like, you ain't gotta do shit ever again. You ain't gotta do shit, but breathe, 
And I'm gonna tell you, that's the best breather Period. I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's also something I love about us, the way that, you know, black, black folks, um, and especially black women can look at each other and be like, you better wear them chucks. Like, and it's just like, cause it's really, what else do you have to do? Like, what else right. do you really actually have to do? Um, and I, and I feel that, and I think there's a lot of beauty in that. Um, but then there's also, I think the reality that, um, there is a very urgent and, and, and immediate and not immediate, like it needs to happen tomorrow, but immediate. And like, we can't go too much longer like this. Um, both on right. a planet scale and a people scale. And it, like, we, we, we just, and that's been true for a long time, but we really at the point where we cannot do this Mm-mm. for much longer. Everything about white supremacy is just killing the planet and everybody on it. And so we know that. And so knowing that there's this, this need, it's like, I can't actually just breathe. I can barely do that really but like I can't actually just breathe I can't actually just sit in my house and chill I can't actually just like go to work and get my paycheck and come home not because that would make me unworthy but because like I literally cannot like I I, I physically cannot know what I know and just keep living my black ass life like nothing else needs to happen or nothing else needs to change Mm -hmm. so that's like one part I think on a more intimate level where it's coming up for me is not so much for myself, but with my child where it's like, it's interesting you brought up like what hair meant growing up and what that experience was like growing up. Cause it's very similar, you know, first it was flat irons, then it was perms, but always some message that this is bad. This part of you is bad. And I can't let you go outside looking any kind of way like I can and it's just kind of like and and I went through you know part of my rebellion in my teens was <laughs> I really like to tell the story because <laughs> it just so typifies like me as a person but even now like my relationship with my mom even though it wasn't like this all the time when I was a teenager but I did a big chop when I was 16 I think oh wow um, and I was attending like a private Catholic high school so you know there were maybe like 10 black kids in my grade 50 ish in the whole school whatever every other black girl in the school wore uh singles perms weaves you know something but like nobody was walking around campus um with a with just a nappy astro and so I did this big chop my my you know early into my junior year high school and just started letting that motherfucker grow. I just let it grow. And I just, all I, I watched it and I moisturized it. I didn't do shit else. I didn't braid it. I didn't pick it. I didn't tame nothing. You leave my shit alone. And, <laughs> and it was, it was intentional because once I started, I think, what do we call it? It was, we were conscious, conscious back, not woke, but you know, when you get conscious and don't want to listen to like massages rapping more or whatever, I went through that period where everything had to be to the other extreme. So mm-hmm. it was like, I'm not walking around here fucking colonizer hair. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to pick my fro so that it, it's more, you know. And even though my mom had also gone natural recently and like that was part of the motivation and part of the encouragement, you know, she went natural and then immediately went into like very cute little uni afro and then like started growing locks that were always like gorgeous and and maintained and things like that um so they're even still in and going natural was an element of there's a, a little bit of reclamation but you still need to like your shit still need to be neat your shit still needs to be like, like and so we, i remember we were at the dinner table once and the rule in our house because my brothers you know went through various things sometimes they wanted fade sometimes they wanted their little fro or whatever and she had a rule for my brothers that if you were in a phase of growing your hair out, it needed to be neat, picked, you know, no lint, that kind of stuff, or you needed to get a haircut. Um, but basically, don't go out this house embarrassing me. <laughs> which I'm not mad at. You know, Shut I, up, I, I now as a parent too, like I understand. I understand that so so deeply. But I just remember we had this conversation because you know it's, it's been a little bit my fro is doing his thing i'm adamant about it staying nappy and whatever and you just gonna have to deal 
And we had this conversation at the dinner table. She was like, it's only fair, you know, that you have the same rule as your brothers. Like, you can start picking your afro out or you can cut it off. And I was like, okay, I'll cut it off. And I didn't know at this. I mean, I didn't know when I she was bluffing. I didn't know she was bluffing. I was just like, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna be bald headed then because I'm not picking this. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. It's not a thing. It's not happening. They gonna get the snappy ass hair everywhere I go. But it was scary because I was just like, I believe in this that much. So in that moment, I was like, seventeen year old me was like. She, she really knew what the fuck she was talking about. Uh, but it comes up for me now because I'm navigating. I actually just wrote a poem this week about doing my daughter's hair because, and in it, I'm talking about how like, you know, she was bald headed for like her first year of life. Like she didn't really start getting hair on her head till after she had turned one. So that was great. Like I just had to rub her little scalp down and we were good to go. <laughs> And then after she turned one, like, you know, the fro starts coming in a little more. But we still had actually like another year before we really had to start. Because like still from one to two, she wasn't bald headed anymore. But she looked like how eight month old baby's hair looks when it's first growing in. So we still right. we just moisturize. Okay. But when she started really getting like a full, long, thick head of hair. Where I was like, okay, if she just wakes up and like rolls out of bed we can't just kind of like fluff it anymore like and I'm I'm still I'm still navigating like I don't want her to get the message that how her hair naturally comes out of her head is wrong is bad Mm. is 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 less than is what I really and I don't know how she doesn't get that message because at the same time it's like I'm learning now it's not just about making it palatable to other people it's not just about trying to prove that you're you're worthy of like being respected of being admired of being attracted to or whatever but it's also like there's maintenance there's Mm -hmm. care there's like your hair needs to be healthy which means that like yeah so maybe i didn't need to pick out my fro into this like neat but like yeah, my fro needed some detangling. You know, I didn't have to do it like that. I, you know, so you like, yeah, you lived in like right, but like I didn't have to do it like that. <laughs> so I'm learning this balance of like, how do I also celebrate everything our hair can do? Mm-hmm. You know, without making it like I'm doing your hair because if I don't, but that's part of the motivation. If I don't my worthiness i feel like as a mother shit so i almost cried this week because i cornrow her hair for the first time i never learned how to cornrow and i've been practicing on my own hair to try and do it and it was lopsided and like it was a whatever but i was i was i was there on the last braid and i was like like i really was like i can't believe it like i fucking braided my braid again because other people you know other members of the village or just stylists have been braiding my daughter's hair for right. almost four years and that was impacting how I felt, like, my worthiness as a mother. Because, like, how as a Black mom can I not do my own child's hair? Mm-hmm. Like, where where they do that? Like, that's, but it was definitely impacting how I was showing up and how I was able to take care of her. And it's it's still, I don't have answers. I don't, I don't feel good about where I've currently landed. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the days where she's, like... I don't want you to brush my hair. I really wish that I could honestly look at her and go, okay, let me just like throw some water and moisturizer in it and we'll go. But like, I'm just like, or in the day she's like, I don't want, I don't, I don't want you anywhere near my head. I don't want water or moisturizer either. Like, I don't want you to touch my hair today. And I want to be like, cool, you got it. We don't have to. I'm not there yet. But it's also like, mm-mm, let's just, just a little, little something, something, you know. But I, I really feel very deeply ingrained, right? That part of like, I can't just let her, even if she's only going to be around. It's well, honestly, not even, especially, it's actually not because of white people, it's because of how we judge each other on behalf of white folks. But 
still like it's it's even when I know like she's gonna only be around other black people I'm especially like I cannot send you to your preschool with all black folks Mm -hmm. looking like I don't know how to do your hair because that is like one of the like check boxes of Right. And and actually speaking into that, I want to pivot a little bit into Black folks and mental health, um, specifically suicidal ideation, because I feel like we don't talk about it enough. And and for me, something this week, um, a friend that I I grew up with, she she would have turned 28 this week, um, but she died by suicide. And I think about the ways in which the world fails Black women and girls because we learn about mental health and even, like, just awareness, right? We learn about it through trial and error. We don't learn about it through preventative measure. Um, And so I, I wanted us just to talk a little bit about that, especially within the Black community and how we do put these like pressures to be you know presentable these pressures to show up you know with a smile on our face to act like we're fine even when we're not um and and really how that is another message of what it means to be worthy right like how people like how we're received is like tells us where we're we're safe and where we're not So I've been, I first got a mental health diagnosis in 2013. Well, I I think my very, very first diagnosis was like PTSD and I didn't take that therapist seriously. I was like, I've never been to war. But even that is like the way we think about certain, you know, things of mental health. Now I know better now, of course, but like at the time, you know, undergrad, I was just like, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was like coming out of what I understand now, you know, to be a, a clinical, you know, depressive episode, and I got into to long-term therapy for the first time. And, you know, after some time working together, I was like, so what's up? Like, what's wrong with me? (laughs) Why did I just spend three months, like, binge eating and then sleeping 16 hours a day? Like, just utterly abject (laughs) misery at being alive. Like, what the fuck's up with that? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I was diagnosed with with PTSD again, um, which has largely been resolved, thankfully. And then what has stuck is the general like depression and anxiety diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I just think about how many folks I know, Black women and femmes especially, who have some such diagnosis, if not other mental health diagnoses. And one, I think it's really powerful because it's like there is there is privilege in being able to get a diagnosis. There's also there has to be a really intentional choice to, you know, seek treatment in order to even get there to where you can have an idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really scary when I first started out and I was still very private about it because even this this again, the shrinking and, and when other people's opinions weigh too much. Uh, my, you know, long-term partner until um, a couple years ago, when I initially brought up um, wanting to go to therapy to get support with um, surviving sexual assault, it was like, I mean, I you could try, but I don't really see why you like need somebody else to talk to about things like that. Like that's, listen, one thing I'm a fucking die before I let happen okay is let my daughter date somebody whoever just the you level know, of like better. gas what you like? know, the gaslighting was real from <laughs> just, job okay from like, like wow. month two 
and I had no idea. So motherfucker got twelve years anyway. Um, <laughs> but like even just what you're saying, I feel like we get that from all angles, right? Of yes. like, I went to go see a therapist. So why do you why do you feel like you need that? You you don't like why do you feel? And it's like there are I I personally feel like if shit i'm like i think it all should be free but i feel like every black person should have a therapist i think that this country owes us that if if, look of all of all the other things that they do owe us um but i do think that we like everybody needs a therapist and i think that when we talk about like access right is really hard and i appreciate that you mentioned the privilege of you know diagnosis and the privilege of being able to work through these things because most people get stuck at that first part of like someone already being like, "Why do you need that?" Mm-hmm. And then they and back out. And I was out. stuck for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was stuck in that space of like, "Well, I guess, I guess." And then I did. It's not only just that part, like that one person's opinion. It's also not having any examples. It's also not knowing anybody who had a therapist, anybody who went to therapy, unless somebody was like if you don't go to therapy X, if you, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like without there being some sort of ultimatum attached, like definitely not just going because you're like, like what ultimately drove me to therapy was the fact that after a couple months of, you know, legit, I, those t- 12, 16 hour, day, just sleep, 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 sleep. Mm-hmm. Partner comes home from work and I'm like trying to engage and be normal or whatever. And then it's sleep, 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 sleep. Like he mm-hmm. leave to to go to work in the morning and I'm getting up out the bed making it look like I'm about to do some shit and I just move my blanket to the couch and I'm asleep like it just was uh it was and it was in and in it day in day and you know like that and what finally drove me was that feeling of like okay I don't know what this means but like there has to be another way Mm-hmm. And I also want to name that even in in the relative privilege of being able to access care I also experience a lot of fuckery within these systems so to afford a therapist right like i have been in therapy off and on for you know eight years now mm-hmm. but part of like i haven't been able to have a consistent therapist for that eight years not because people you know retired or whatever but because i primarily access therapy through like the graduate training Mm. model Mm -hmm. where my therapists are working at a center um to get their hours Mm -hmm. for their degree and then sometimes that pans out so my very first therapist through a program like that that panned out into a two-year relationship but ultimately Mm -hmm. after she graduated it was like actually i don't want to do private practice you know and that has happened to me multiple times Mm -hmm. over the course of my therapy journey where it's like I'm I'm working with somebody, we you know I'm, I'm making progress, and then, and it's like I really shouldn't have to access care like that. Right. Like the one time I got lucky, and I called, um, I was I was in between therapists. After that happened, I called I happened to call Kaiser, which has the most just it, it's their process. Fucking, I'm going to call that shit immoral. It is unethical <laughs> the way Kaiser is allowed to run their mental health department. Like, this shit don't make no sense. Like, no. they want to put everybody in these boozy ass group therapy sessions. And then when you want to ask for a black therapist. Oh, it's just <laughs> gross. It's, but the one time I called Kaiser to try and get a, ther- a therapy referral, and they were so overbooked that they had actually started referring folks to outside therapists. So I got, you know, like a, a legit, like, quote unquote, real therapist who had been practicing for 20 plus years. And it was, it was, it was interesting. But like the point being that like, even just to get somebody who's been doing therapy for decades and like has hella experience. One, I got matched with this white dude who like, yes, had a lot of experience, but like I was at that time trying to get pregnant and he was like, ah, uh, mm. like I had to stop working with him after I had my baby because he was like, I don't know what to do with postpartum. Like I have no idea what to do with, with the, I haven't had clients who are, who had babies and, and are struggling. And so like, he just hadn't had pregnant, enough pregnant clients to like have that experience. So even in that, right. But mostly I have my this bro. frustration. So like I've lost, I'm on my third therapist now mm-hmm. with this current organization. And part of it is like, again, folks graduate, they are, you know, doing whatever folks do with their careers after they graduate. 
And then every time that change is happening, the old therapist and new therapist, well, how are you feeling about this? I'm feeling like this system is fucked up and I shouldn't be having to switch therapists again because the only way I can afford therapy is these sliding scale ass programs and y'all motherfuckers be graduating and you gotta do what you gotta do because that's what you do when you graduate. Like, I, so even within that, there's a lot of stop and start. And, you mm. know, even now, like I've been working with my current therapist for a year and we work great together. There's still always a part of me though that's like not as present as I want to be in my therapy because it's like, well, I, I, I just can't, I cannot trust this system. Right. I can't trust that you won't need to move on. And because I'm in a place where I can't afford somebody who is more stable, then I just have to take, take this part. But that's, that's one note I wanted to make about the privilege of therapy. I think in terms of the suicidal ideation in particular, as, as an aspect of mental illness. Um, I made a commitment a while ago to just like talk about mental health and mental illness and my challenges and my successes and, and my methods or whatever, as much as I can, even if it makes people uncomfortable because of that, because we don't talk about it that much. Because when I was starting out, I, I couldn't think of one person I knew who had been consistently in therapy. Um, and I see, you know, friends breaking down around me, friends being hospitalized, like all, and it's just like, and we still, we still not talking about it. So I talk about it as much as I can. And it is uncomfortable and it's hard because like, I don't feel safe talking about the fact that I have suicidal ideation on the regular. Like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel good to talk about that, but it's also like, it doesn't feel good to live it. Like it doesn't feel right. good to to have to have that within myself and feel like I can't share it because I don't want people to worry about me because mm -hmm. I don't want people to be uncomfortable because I don't want to sound like I'm just, you know, complaining or being dramatic or whatever else we've been taught about how our feelings aren't actually our feelings. And right. I think too, there's the part about mental health and mental illness that that's not just specific to the black community where I think with certain media and things like that, there is also a glorification of a certain type of way that mental illness can show up. And mm -hmm. so when you don't, when you don't, so for example, I didn't know for the longest time that for a great number of people, depression actually manifests as anger and not as sadness. And my first sign that a depressive episode is coming is I get irritable. I get mm -hmm. impatient. I start just being fucking outraged at everything. Mm -hmm. Before I feel anything that feels like sadness or despondence or whatever, I'm pissed. But because mm -hmm. I, I've been taught all my emotions really are, are not okay, even the right. good ones, honestly. Like, I remember getting fussed at as a kid for being, like, happy. Like, it's just like y'all are too excited in there it's like mm. hmm? <laughs> what you mean grandma uh but it's like being taught that all these things are not okay then i end up feeling you know you kind of just shrink back into yourself yes yeah. because it's not okay it's definitely not okay for me to be mad mm -mm. it's definitely not like if it's not okay for me to be anything it's not okay for me to be angry even when there's perfectly valid reasons all the fucking time every fucking day to be really really angry but not knowing that because there's no information given we're not talking about this mm -hmm. and also knowing that and experiencing that it changed you know i i work with young people it changes how you relate to young people because right. it's like i'm looking at this person and it's like yeah you just seem like you're pissed at everything you are probably depressed as like who wouldn't be and that's the part for me, like, we all get, like, if not actually beaten, no, figuratively beaten into submission to the idea that the only way to be is okay. Right. And I think that part of that is, again, this idea of, I feel like as Black women, we have to connect our sense of worthiness to our sense of safety mm -hmm. a lot of times because I think people violating our boundaries our bodies as a way of saying we ain't worth shit is is often the earliest 
experience for a lot of us of somebody communicating to us that like you you actually you just don't really mean anything and I can show you that you don't mean anything by abusing you and then getting upset with you for saying hey that's abuse and convincing you no it's not abuse you're fine everything's okay this is just how things are this Mm -hmm. is just how it is and so there's a there's a part of me that's like okay people need to know that like you can be mad and that's depression. Like folks need to know that you can be highly productive and social and, you know, a helper and that's anxiety. Yep. And that's been my experience. Like folks are like, Ali, you do all this stuff and you, you know, you like, you always just seem like you're fine. You're always holding space. And then when I tell them like. Chit Chat with Ali Cat is sponsored by Teas with Meaning. Magic is our main ingredient. Teas with Meaning is committed to providing handcrafted organic loose leaf and bottled tea blends. Developed in the heart of Oakland by educator and tea connoisseur Camila Mitchell, a brain tumor survivor and cancer warrior. All ingredients are sourced from Mount Shasta, California and other farms throughout the world to ensure quality ingredients with various medicinal properties without compromising taste. I love a good cup of tea from Teas with Meaning in the morning or at night when I'm about to go to bed. It's just just a warm hug. I recommend you all go get a few bags of tea and yeah, sip with meaning. No, like I've had like these serious suicidal ideations are like, but, but, but you're like, and I'm like, there's no exceptionalism here. There's no like way for you to, there's no poster child. Right. And I think that it's really important for us to have these conversations. And really, I appreciate you talking about how demoralizing it is to go through these systems to even ask for help. And as black women, you know, I find it like super hard for us to ask for help because we're just taught that we should know how to do it. If we don't know how to do it, we need to learn how to do it. You know, this idea of like, we have to just figure it out. And there are things you just can't figure it out by yourself, right? That like, it is so important. You know, you talked about your friend Dom, that you have people in your life who are champions of your wellness, champions of your heart, you know, who show up um, for themselves that reminds you that you can show up for yourself too. Uh, and so I just appreciate you like bringing us into that space of, you know, how does this all play out and how do we see it? Because I was reading something too about anxiety and how people assume anxiety is like high strung energy. And like, for me, like I posted a picture last week, like, this is what anxiety looked like. I look calm as fuck. And everybody was like, Oh my God, you look so cute. And I'm like, Y'all missed the whole message. <laughs> that's not the point. That's not what I said. That's I was like, I literally had a whole little panic attack. I was like, was like crying. And, you know, I thought about it. And it just, the thing that came to me was that I spent so much time thinking about how I was going to die that I didn't think about how I was going to live. Oh, come on now, it hit me. That's where I'm at right now. I, I, I actually, I cannot, I cannot picture my life past like 40, 45. Like I, I don't, I, I, and I, and that's where I'm trying to get to is like, I got, I, to me, it's like 40, 45. And I think I'm really going to legit be ready to tap out this motherfucker. Cause like, how, how could I possibly keep going like this? And I think part of it is I'm still navigating a lot of shame around asking for help the way mm-hmm. I choose to to help myself so for example medication like we talk about therapy and then it's like the whole other layer of medication right. where I resisted medication for a smooth five years mm-hmm. after it was first suggested to me mm-hmm. like my my first serious therapist was like have you ever thought about an antidepressant and I was like I mean, I didn't call her a bitch, but I was just like, (laughs) you still don't know the fuck you're talking to? Like, what do I look like taking an anti... You know, I really was like offended. Mm. Because it was just like, I'm in therapy. What more do you want from me? What more do you want from me? She said, I'm here. I'm a therapist. Right, I'm here. I have a therapist. I journal. Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? And it was just so... (laughs) 
<laughs> it was just so to me like I you must be you must be out of your mind if you mm. think I'm gonna fucking take meds like I'm not that crazy like that was I remember mm. having that thought process like I'm not that crazy I've never been checked in anywhere whatever and it wasn't until I was like struggling to do basic shit for my infant mm. it was never neglected she was never harmed thank god but like it was an immense struggle where it was like legit ending every day just drained to my core mm. from feeding and bathing and playing with a baby and that's when I was like oh okay so maybe it doesn't have to be like this <laughs> like, and I started a uh, prescription of Zoloft, you know, two and a half years ago. And now I'm at the fence of like, I I had to stop smoking weed recently. Cause I, I mean, just recipes. Um, because I found out that's what has been causing my digestive stress oh. for, that's a whole other episode. Okay. Wow. But for anybody out there who throwing up all the time and your stomach hurt all the time and you just so happen to smoke weed a lot, just saying maybe explore a little something called chs okay it's a very anti-black illness um anyway <laughs> i told somebody this is the most anti-black shit oh since single like, <laughs> like it's so that's so real but i i want to just go back to what you were saying about like medication and, and really the stigma there's so many Ooh. stigmas that live around mental health mental illness and like what it means to actually show up right like once yeah. once you have the therapist like even that the shadow work you know it's not cute <laughs> it's it's not like oh it's curled up on your kitchen floor ugly like it's 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 not a good time <laughs> and that's the part too that pisses me off about media media portrayal around mental health, mental wellness, what it means for people to take care of themselves. Because there's this extreme of like, well, you're not really depressed unless you are trying to slit your wrist. And like, you're not really anxious unless you are like regularly having panic attacks where like you, somebody's fucking handing you a paper bag or some shit. Mm -hmm. And like, that's just not it. Like the fact that, you know, I can't sit still without my leg bouncing, without my heart racing, without feeling like there's an actual legit gorilla on my back. Like, that's not cool. I don't mm -hmm. have to live like that. Mm -hmm. And now I'm facing the issue where I'm like, medication works. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. You know, like I, I still very much have suicidal ideation, but it's less of a, I want to die. Somebody, I, I talked to a therapist recently who, who she was like, oh, so it's like passive. It's like passive ideation. It shit still feels real aggressive, but like, okay, uh, because it, it's like, I, apparently clinically, although she could have said that better, I, my therapist was like, that's not. I was like, that wording just like, to, that's just like, so dismissive. We, we see a difference between folks who want to die versus folks who just don't want to live. Like there is a clinical difference, but like, you don't have to, you don't say it like that. <laughs> like, okay, good. Glad it wasn't just me. But it's, it's that I feel that difference though. Like I feel the difference between I want to die and I just haven't gotten like the courage honestly is what it felt like mm. to do something about it yet versus now this experience of like I could just be cool not living um because this feels like a scam <laughs> and mm. I'm still trying to work on that because now it's like the the beast of depression feels somewhat tamed for the most part and now my anxiety is like, gotcha, bitch. <laughs> Why they tag team? They tag team. I, I Big Mom, well, that show got that really right. Like this, this uh, the way they can like take turns, the way they sometimes pile on all at the same time. But right now my anxiety is high feet because it's just like, oh, depression not taking up all this space no more. Kapow. Like, don't forget they said you anxious and depressed. And so I'm, I'm like, you know what? Especially without... Honestly, what was a major and, and delightful coping mechanism, I immediately was like, listen, doc, if I got to come off weed, you're going to have to run me something for this anxiety because I'm not <laughs> doing this. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not. And, and what I've accepted, what I'm working on accepting is, yes, I actually could do this without chemical support. I could. I could do this without the Zoloft, I could do this without asking for support with my anxiety. The point for me is 
why do I feel like I need to suffer in this manner? And who is benefiting from that? Come on. Me being on Zoloft means that I'm spending a lot less time trying to get energy to bathe myself, trying to get energy to feed myself, trying to get energy to move my body, trying to get energy to engage with my community. It means that I don't spend as much energy trying to do these extremely important things for making life worth living. And so like, I, yeah, boom, pop it 10 o'clock every night because like, I could do it without, so could I do this without the anxiety meds? Sure, I could, I could do it. I've been doing it, I am doing it and fucking it up, like it's great. <laughs> but it's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and that's the thing, that's the thing. We excel even when we feel at our lowest because we don't, like there isn't space still made. There isn't big enough space made for black women to fall apart. For not us at all. to not be okay. Because I've, I've had the thought, like, I would like to check myself into a psych ward. Mm. But if I'm on a hold for three days, and then that's three days that my daughter is supposed to, like, not know what's up with me. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's like, I have a fantastic co-parent and things like that. But, like, that's the first thing. Or it's like, okay, I'm supposed to check myself in somewhere. And then now my mom's anxiety is... <laughs> Right. On a hundred, you know, I'm supposed to check myself in somewhere and then worry forever if that's gonna follow me around somehow because HIPAA it's documented. when you're talking about a black woman's yeah. rights, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like I I don't feel like I have the luxury mm. to just be like, yo, fuck this, I'm falling apart. I've been holding it together. I've been fighting. I've been trying. I'm I'm the fuck tired. Right. And, Is there somewhere tools, that? I was just saying these tools help it so that like I'm not expending so much of that energy just trying to do basic shit. Mm -hmm. And I can actually free up my brain space to do the things that that are fulfilling. Mm. Yeah. And I was just going to ask if you feel like there is somewhere you feel like black women can fall apart. I think we make the space for each other. Mm -hmm. I think I think we make the space for each other all the time. Um, I think some of us um you know have the blessing of of having um partners um who, who also may or may not be black women and femmes themselves but even when they're not you know some of us do have the blessing of having partners who who let us fall apart without the judgment without the shame um but i i that's not it's not enough like i i and i'm not asking for permission or or wanting there to be a place where i can just like run screaming through the streets which is what i actually want to do um but like that also like that, that also sounds kind of nice and i i, I asked that question because <laughs> for real we could just be that's like really actually what i, I want to like in my like my fantasy is me just being like just do you imagine just like call of the wild but like i really asked this question because last year i did a podcast episode on lifelines and like mm. how we you know how we connect with folks and I asked this question of like, where do black women exhale? And the answer was the same answer you gave, you know, with other black women. We hold space for each other. We see each other. We see ourselves. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about that with, you know, Micaiah Bryant in terms of oh. like, where do we feel safe? Where do we feel secure? And the answer is that it's rare because yeah. even sometimes in spaces with black women, we yeah. feel unsafe, yeah. right? And so it's like, shit, it's like it keeps getting smaller and smaller, this little cluster of, of security that we have been trying to develop. And, yeah. and I, I'm constantly wondering how we can reimagine, you know, how we can hold space for what it is we're not seeing, what it is we need, um, while also holding space for ourselves. And I think from what I was hearing from you and kind of what I've been reflecting on is like, Sometimes you just have to hold space for yourself off top. Like that is how you show up for the community, you know, in some moments. But some moments is tandem, right? Um, I, I think like I hold a lot of space for folks. And sometimes I'll be like, you know what? I'm not the one to hold space for this event. Like, mm -hmm. like it's not, I'll go to an event and support somebody else, but I don't need to be mm -hmm. the one holding the space because I need to be held. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that we get so caught up in this idea of feeling like we have to be the ones to be there for everybody yeah. that that worthiness it shifts back into well you know in the order of priority i'm not on the list till the bottom you know and and i was kind of hearing you say it earlier but are there ways that you have been trying to kind of like hold yourself and nurture yourself you know mother yourself back into this space where where you are higher on your priority list Mm. Um, I mean, so academia sucks like every other anti-black white supremacist system that we we live under. But um, last fall, I started an MFA program on the SF State. Um, And the reason why it's a, a nurturing is, you know, I wanted to I don't want to say you can't be like you can take yourself. Get girl. Sorry, my cat is biting my feet. If you don't move, <laughs> um, like you pay bills, and I can't put my feet right there. Like you better move. Um, but it 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 just has it just has always felt like impractical. Like it has always felt like that that would be a waste. One because yeah, you you do not need you do not need. I'm not saying you need. An MFA you to do take not yourself need. seriously as a writer, to have a career as a writer. Like there's plenty of folks that we see that we know that's not true. Mm-hmm. However, what I was thinking about was not in this moment. Previously, I've just been like, well, I'm probably I'm not going to pursue a, a career as a writer. Like I'm going to go the education route and like whatever space writing has, it has. Mm-hmm. That did not pan out well. Like especially once I was really kind of deep into. A relationship that wasn't nurturing and was in fact like just sapping my life force <laughs> then it became it became like like writing just was like non-existent um, mm. but writing I say I bring up the MFA because when I returned to writing after my divorce and and really started engaging with with language and words again like that's part of what felt like was happening mm-hmm. um was just this like opening up um and and it's still it always gives me chills I was just like like I just remember the first like full poem I wrote in 2019 and it had been probably like five years since I had finished a poem probably five years since I had written more than a line or two of anything and so the first poem I finished that was actually like this is a poem this is a poem this is a poem what the fuck is this poem <laughs> I just because it it was just like shit is still there, and so and then even when I was applying for the MFA, I remember really clearly I was talking to my therapist and I was like, this is a dumb idea. Like this mm. is I don't know why I thought this was a good idea. Like just the application process is so stressful, and like putting together my sample and I, like I'm just like there nobody's these please and I'm applying last minute like I'm pulling together like an application no lie the week before they were due because i'm not okay so really really what happened was i had to quit this toxic ass job and right before i quit you know folks like what are you gonna do to like eat or whatever and i was like shit i can always go back to school and take out student loans oh fuck (laughs) it's like somebody will give me a degree (laughs) and i can live off of loans if i have to like that was literally my plan but when I started, like, well, what program would you even apply to if that was your plan? It was mm-hmm. like, well, shit, okay, I got, the, I got the English degree, I got the education degree, what's left? Mm-hmm. Like, it's something, that little voice, like, you could get a creative writing degree. And the, there was only two programs who were still accepting applications, and I it, I had a week. <laughs> I was talking to my therapist. Wow. And I was just like, why did I think, I had already, you know, I was going, why did I think I could do this? Like, why would I, I'm feeling so much anxiety about this process. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, you know, my, my therapist is an Asian uh, American woman, um, but but with the shits, you know, in solidarity. And, you know, she said, well, as a black woman, like you have been made to feel like the safest way for you to be is is invisible. That if Ooh. you start taking up space and I'm like, fucking, this motherfucker's spitting. <laughs> if, if you take <laughs> If you take up space, 
to your brain, taking up space automatically means you're going to be unsafe. Like you're just period. If people can see you, if people can perceive you, if people can like, you're going to be unsafe. So Mm -hmm. you doing something that is a deeply held dream of yours, you doing something that puts you in alignment with your purpose is going to be scary because it goes against the message you've received that we don't do that. We don't do, we don't do big. We don't do following our wildest dreams or whatever. So I said, the biggest thing I've done for myself recently is give myself, it's not about the piece of paper at the end. They're going to give it to me, obviously, but like, it's not about that anymore. It was when I was getting my education degree because like that literally translated to being able to eat better as a Mm -hmm. teacher. It's not about that. It's about the fact that this, a program like this, especially when you choose one that really is a good match is the space. It's dedicated space. I have to write every week. And, and even though I'm working on repairing my relationship with myself as a writer, and it's a hugely important part of my identity, it's still a process. I definitely do not write every day, but in part because of this program, I write multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. I'm reading every week. Like there's not time going by like it was before where I'm not giving myself the space to nurture that craft. Mm -hmm. And it, and it just, and even when I was talking that going back to my, that conversation with my therapist, she just asked me to talk about what writing means to me. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, I'm stressed the fuck out. Why did I think I could do? Why did you let me do this? (laughs) And she and I started talking about, you know, my relationship with writing and what it means. And she was just like, do you see that? Do you see how your energy shifted when Mm -hmm. you started talking about writing? And even people I'm just meeting. I was meeting a coworker, and I was I just so happened to share. I was in a program and he was like, oh, we should get you to do something. I work on college and career readiness. And he was like, we should get you to do something with the students with poetry. And I was like, listen, man, I'm credentialed up, too. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, But it's. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it but was the fact real. That he, he said that too. He don't. This man don't know me. Like, yeah, we've been working together for a few months, but like, this is my first week on campus. You're just seeing me in person, and even he remarked on that. Mm-hmm. Like, you started talking about writing. You started talking about how you work with young people with writing, and your whole everything just like just, just lit up. Yeah. And so that is how I know, like, that I'm doing a huge thing for mm-hmm. teaching myself that. If it is not harming other people, if it is not actively and knowingly contributing to the subjugation of others, like obviously there's a lot that we can't control about those things. And it's a dream of mine, like, and so now it's, 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 it's things big and small. MFA is, is big. It's, it's big. You know, I don't consider that a small commitment at all to myself, but it's inspiring other things. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally it's it's got me sliding in dms like because that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not a thing. one i was in a monogamous relationship for he- my entire adulthood up until a couple years ago but also just like be anxiety <laughs> yeah and i, I was really... like watch me slide these dms and this person fucking just block me like they don't even say anything they just i'm just blocked like i you know whatever fantastical <laughs> kind of imaginations but just even just to tell people like you know, I would like to tell you that you are an attractive human. Like that kind of, and people being like, oh, what? You, really? Because by the way, the feeling's mutual, like shit that just like, I would have never thought that that would make sense for me. You know, mm-hmm. putting blue braids in my hair. I'm thinking about getting a belly button piercing, whatever. Because it's also just like, what were the things that little Melani wanted to do to express herself, to explore herself, to love on herself that was denied for whatever reason and it's like a whole box full of brightly colored lipsticks mm -hmm. you know i get my nails and i'll be clickety clacking or whatever because like those were too grown you know for me to have like things that are just really i'm putting a garden on my leg you know we talked about tattoos like i like my tattoos are reminders you know the garden tattoo in particular is my reminder to always seek abundance like to always like the biggest lesson I learned from from my very, very lazy amateurish gardening is that the earth, you know, it's it's default is abundance. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, the default is really abundance. And it isn't until you impose restrictions. It isn't until you impose certain things on nature, on yourself, that that abundance then shrinks. But like 
you put tomatoes in the ground, they want to become lots and lots and lots of tomatoes. But if you put them in a tiny little pot, that's not what it needs. It's not going to be able to provide. It's the default. Our default is abundance. Mm -hmm. And then that gets trained out of us. And I'm trying to find my way back to it, really. Yeah. And I really appreciate what you were saying about, you know, your MFA and this idea of like giving yourself permission, you know, permission to have these spaces, permission to be. And similarly, that's why I, I started my MFA. So I was like, I don't need the paper. Like I have the papers, I'm, I'm chilling. But really I need the experience, I need the space, I need the like mindset of I'm writing, I'm a writer, I'm gonna be able to like be sharpened by other writers. And what's really funny about it is that although my experience has been really dope through the folks that I've met, I've learned so much through the writing communities that were right there that I didn't realize were right there. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I really, yes. you know, I'm in a whole oh, institution. Oh, so everybody was just, y'all was just writing over here? Nobody told me we was writing. Yeah, there. like y'all in the cut. I'm over here thinking I got to be at this program to be a writer. And so I just really think, I, I appreciate you just sharing your journey and like how it's shown up and how you've advocated for yourself in all these different ways. Um, because it's not easy. Uh-oh. Okay. We have, okay, time is up. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Chit Chat with Alley Cat. Please subscribe where you listen to podcasts and we'll catch you later.